everyone and thank you so very much for joining me for another episode of Talking Cloud. Now, you know, this is where we talk about cloud, cloud computing, anything, all things cloud. I mean, it is such an enormous word. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and and we're all using it in more and many different ways. As you know, I'm no expert. But I do know where to find them, and I've uh, really been hunting hard, and I think I've got a great one for today's program. I mean, I'm really super excited. Years ago, he was an engineer for Department of Justice, was at uh, Booz Allen Hamilton Predictive Systems. He founded a company, Real Ops. Uh, this is back in the early 2000s, was a vice president at BMC Managing Director at Helix Ventures. I mean, it goes on. Chairman and co-founder at App47. Chairman of the board at the Windward Foundation. He's president and CEO founder uh, for enterprise software IT company Windward Consulting. I don't know if I got that exactly right. He'll be able to get me straight. And I believe currently is president and CEO and founder at Red Monocle. And I'm super excited to have Sean McDermott on the program today. Sean, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on to Talking Cloud. Thank you, Grant. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, it's awesome. So why don't you take some time since you have much more uh, detailed insight on your z-axis and your life and how your journey has got you to where you are and what you're up to why don't you take a minute and talk about that sure um <laughs> i forgot about half of those um yeah so i started my i'm an electrical engineer i bachelor's in engineering i got a master's in engineering too uh, i started my career at department of justice as a uh, lowly old engineer trainee um, it was a great experience actually working there and eventually I moved into consulting. I always knew I wanted to be in the consulting business and really kind of focus on helping our, you know, people solve complex problems. So from there I went to Booz Allen, which at the time was, you know, probably one of the top leading consulting firms in the country. Uh, and then I formed my own uh, company called Windward Consulting Group back in 1997. So that Windward still runs today. It's been 24 years. Wow. And uh, we, yeah, yeah, we've Kudos been around to for you while. for that. Man, that's that's an accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're real proud of what we've done there. I mean, we worked with, you know, well over 500, Fortune 500 companies and large telecommunication providers, you know, 6,000 projects, you know, and more. Uh, but along the way, I've I've been lucky enough to to create a few companies out of Windward where we were working on certain uh, software projects and were able to codify some of our consulting methodologies. And the first one was Real Ops, which we founded in 2004. 
and I ran that company for three years until we sold it to BMC. I stayed on the BMC for about a year, running their uh, service automation, worldwide service automation division. Where so all the uh, IT automation pro- products f- fell under that portfolio, mm. and then we, um, and then I did, and then I swore I'd never uh, do another software company, and <laughs> I've done two more since. <laughs> so uh, one thing I've learned as a serial entrepreneur is never say never. Right. And uh, so we started at 47 in 2011. Uh, that's focused on mobile application management. And our latest foray is uh, Red Monocle, where we started that in 2018, and uh, we are focused on what we call cyber risk quantification, which is a mouthful, but uh, we like to call it CRQ. And um, that's uh, we're spending a lot of time in the cyberspace right now, so uh, helping CIOs, I'm sorry, helping CISOs you know, really understand their cyber risk and how to provide deep analytics on where they should be making investments and understanding where their gaps might be to compliance frameworks and things like that so they can just really be much more strategic about their cyber risk. Got it. So what do you call that again? It's called Red Monocle. And, right. No, um, the, the space, the, yeah, the C- space, yeah, we call it CRQ, Cyber Risk Quantification. Cyber Risk Quantification. quantification. And so is this a, is this a software product or is this a series of tools or a framework and a, a process uh, or all of the above? It's actually a SaaS platform and mm-hmm. it, uh, it allows us we have we have a very proprietary knowledge base and uh, in that knowledge base is a um, very deep understanding of cyber tools in the marketplace. Uh, we have well over 400 uh, cyber tools in there that we've done a lot of deep analysis on their capabilities and features and functionalities. We also um, have brought in a number of the standard frameworks around 853 and uh, ISO 27002 and NIST, NIST CFF. And um, what our platform does is it allows you to look at your technologies and your investments compared to these frameworks, identify gaps that you might have in those areas and use that information to develop planning to fill those gaps or look at your overlaps because you know, there's a lot of overspending going on in cyber right now. Yep. Um, you know, this, companies have bought so many tools over the past you know, years that they've bought duplicate capabilities and things like that. Right. So there's an opportunity for uh, better investment strategy of, of consolidation, uh, but also using um, that consolidation as well as our platform to understand how to fill some of the gaps of frameworks that you might not have covered all the way. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that's very unique about what we've done is we've we've been able to map the framework, the controls, you know, cyber controls to business objectives. Because one of the challenges that cybersecurity leaders have is articulating very technical things to non-technical people. Yep. And you know, a, a, a CISO, for example, you know, they they don't they have to convince other people, like the CFO and the CEO and even the CIO sometimes, of to make investments in cybersecurity. Um, a lot of CISOs are trying to get a seat at the table and work with 
boards and helping boards understand cyber risk. But these these boards and some of these executives just don't understand the technology. They they don't understand what controls are. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't understand what endpoint protection is. So we've been able to using some very proprietary analytics and algorithms to map these controls into business metrics so that you can now talk to the CFO about risk to your supply chain. You can talk to your marketing person about cyber risk as compared to brand reputation and brand protection. So you can start having a very different conversation with people who need to understand risk but don't have the background to truly understand the nuts and bolts of it. Yep. Yep, very interesting. So it's it's translating the risk in cyber in their particular language or or context for the business is what it sounds like, right? Correct. You know, we we've done. I, I've been working with security leaders for a long time. We actually did a cybersecurity benchmark study. We're about to release the results. I think it's in in final design should be coming out next week or two. So if anybody wants it, they can go to redmonocle.com and it should be right on the front page there. Okay. um, Free download. But, um, you know, one of the things that we found is that, you know, security leaders sometimes don't feel very supported by the business, you know, which must be, it's a, it's a kind of hard thing, right? You're brought in to basically protect the business, but at the same time, you may not be getting the resources you need and able to convince people of what the risk, the seriousness of the risk is. Um, so you may not be able to get the funding and the investment that you need to do your job. I think that there is a combination of problems here, but I think one of the problems is that the security leaders need to be able to translate that risk into a language that people understand. And, you know, requiring you know, CEOs and CIOs, a little bit different, but but CFOs and finance directors and things like that to understand the the complexities of cyber risk is just, you know, it's just not going to happen, right? Nope. So CISOs really need to kind of change their game and 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 work with these people in a language that they understand, right? right. And they understand, you know, employee satisfaction, client experience, like I said, you know, um, supply chain, sure. you know, they, they understand things like that. So yep. if you can relate risk to those factors, then they'll start to understand like, oh, so our risk score around a customer experience could be higher. And what's the impact of that? And, and how can we make an investment specifically in that? Because we want to make sure that our customer experience is, is very high right. and wouldn't be affected by some type of denial of service attack or something like that. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think that that's, um, this is, a, I mean, this has been a challenge for a long, long time, but you talk about the challenges in, in getting budget. And I think that in this day today, currently, based on the last year, what we've been through and everything else, uh, the the supply chain attacks we've seen, right? Solar winds kind of really rattled our cage. You know, while the economy is actually uh, less, even though it's coming back to looking like it's growing, 
uh, it's less than it was in 2019, uh, uh, but yet companies are expected to bolster their controls, improve threat hunting capabilities. I think there's a real dichotomy in enterprises today, and what you're speaking of, I think, is desperately needed, and that's how can I do more with less? And I think that duplication you mentioned is a real interesting one with the number of vendors that are always looking on the other, you know, looking to, to broaden their capabilities, right? Do you find a lot of people that have tools that they can, they can eliminate one or two because the one they have also could do those other things? Yeah, it's it's that's a, that's a really interesting question. So it really comes down to two things. One is there is duplication out there of tools. So they may have multiple, you know, endpoint protection systems. They may have multiple um, security, you know, information systems, right, and monitoring systems. Um, and those that happens organically sometimes through M&A and things like that. You know, they bring in a platform, they bring in a company and they inherit all that technology and then they never really kind of migrate it together. The other thing is, is that you've got this, you know, the vast majority of software and IT is actually underutilized. So you may have software out there, software tools that are very capable of doing a job. They just haven't been configured the correct way or they haven't been upgraded in a couple of years, and those upgrades have actually brought in a lot of new features. Right. So we see we see like this as a, a two way problem, right? And the the challenge here is how do you maintain all this information about your tool set when every single tool is changing? You know. Every quarter, yep. right? I mean, companies are out there, and they're, re, they're, they're, you know, even we as Red Monocle. I mean, we we do iterative sprints, and we're releasing new, upgraded versions of our software potentially, you know, every four weeks, right? So, or, or more frequently, right? I mean, the fact correct. is, when we start to move into this whole new world of cloud and application development in the cloud and SaaS, I mean, you're right; it's always churning. Where before we had windows that seemingly were, you know, longer strides, right? We got a new version and, oh, we're not going to get another new version. We might get a few iterative versions on the way there, right? But now you can have huge leaps and they can occur bang, 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 right one after the other. Absolutely. And, yeah, yeah the, the, uh, you know, when we were in a world of perpetual licensing, right, yep. and, and you and I have been around the block a while, right? That's all, 10 years ago, that was our whole world, right? Yep. You know, on-prem, you know, perpetual licensed product, you know, software. It, it was hard to do an upgrade, right? So you get an upgrade, you know, a new release would come out once a year. Um, yeah, and like you said, iterative releases would come out once a quarter, and you kind of may or may not upgrade to them because, you know, you don't have time. Well, now these software applications, like you said, are upgrading rapidly. Yep. And that's what we want too, right? We yes. move to the cloud. We want agility. We want, you know, features now. Um, so what's happening is, is it, it's, it takes a lot of time for, for you, for organizations to understand what is happening with all these investments they've made in software. And we're talking about millions of dollars in yep. investments. Yeah. And, 
and how they're changing rapidly. And so you can't even keep up, right? So if you're sitting there as a, as a security leader going, how is my security stack you know, working to what I need to have done? And we'll get to the other half of that, what I need to have done in, for, in a minute. Right. How do you know that when it's changing constantly, right? Because you, you, you're going to need a team of people out there just researching, like, where are we at on this product? What's the latest version? What are the newest features that came out? Are they applicable to us? We don't, you know, it's a tremendous amount of work. So it just doesn't happen. Yep. Right. You're exactly so, right. So we have, a, we have a knowledge base that does all that. Right. And we have a team of analysts. And that's their job. They're on every day researching new products and new versions and updating this knowledge base. So that whole idea of researching what you have completely goes away. Right? All you have to do is identify that you have this product and this version, bring it into your portfolio within our platform, and we take care of everything for you. We will dynamically research and everything changes. The, the flip side of it is, is trying to figure out, okay, now that I know what I've invested in, what do I, what do I need to have done? Like, what am I working against? And, and I, I use this analogy all the time. What's my destination? Like, right. And in the world of security, you know, your destination might be, you know, NIST 853 moderate, right? Or it might be ISO 27002, or it might be FISMA, or a combination of all of these, right? right. Uh, you, know, a, a, you know, a lot of companies, they start out with, you know, NIST CSF critical controls, which are about 20 controls. But that's not the end point, right? That's just a waypoint on their journey of, right. of cyber hygiene. And so what we do is we bring these frameworks and then we compare the stack to those frameworks so if we say that you know if you're saying i want to be nist csf certified we will actually analyze your portfolio and tell you whether you're making the right investments to be csf certified hmm. and once you're at that point then you can say okay now we want to bring on another level this is going to be really really important in the government space uh, well, it's important everywhere. Let me, sure. let me say that. It's literally critical everywhere based on everything you just said about, you know, cybersecurity's importance and, and you know, this colonial and, you know, the list just goes on, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this is really going to get in, in, in interesting in the Defense Department and in the Defense Industrial Base, the DIB, because they're mandating uh, CMMMC uh, level one through five. So depending on what you do with the government, and there's thousands and thousands of government contractors out there, everything from, you know, people who supply, you know, paper products to build satellites, right? And right. build ships and all the subcontractors involved in all this, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars in contracts. They're going to be requiring every single one of these companies to be CMMC level certified. And CMMC certified. Explain that without the acronym. So basically, what it is, it's again, it's a it's a framework of a sub of a set of controls that the Defense Department is going to require that you adhere to in order to do business with them. Yep. It's going to the higher level maturity relates to the the more government information and systems you interact with. So if you're a small small company and you really you you contribute you send things you sell things to the government but you're not handling any information from them except for maybe a contract you'll have to be CMMC level 1 at a minimum. 
And that alone is, you know, not the easiest thing in the world for a small company, right? Right. Um, and so, but it's it's going to be, you know, it's going to be the ticket to entry, right? But if you're a, a government contractor that's building satellites and you have your own secure facilities and you're analyzing government data, or let's say you're an analyst firm working for an Intel that's consuming data coming in from the field and you're doing threat analysis of this data coming in, you might have to be level five, which is going to be really, really stringent. Yeah. So uh, as companies want to do work for the government and, or for the Department of Defense, they're going to have to adhere to CMMLC and and they may start at level one and then move to level two and level three and level four. So I always kind of talk about this as a journey and these are destinations along the way. So what we're able to do is bring in, bring in these frameworks and create these destinations. And like say, so your first destination is like NIST, you know, CSF, you know, cybersecurity framework, critical, 20 critical controls. You do mm -hmm. that. Once you get that done, then you move to CSF, full CSF. From there, you might move into, say, um, uh, NIST 853 moderate. But you also might be doing work with the Department of Defense, so you might also be moving into CMM level three, right? Mm -hmm. So there's all these frameworks that come into play, and we use those frameworks really as the map of what you standards you should and controls you should be adhering to, and then mapping it back to what you've invested in and the technology you have to find out where you're at. Mm. And back to your original question, you know, there's there's overlaps and, and there's a real opportunity for security leaders to be looking and say, hey, look, we might be able to save some money here yep. by by consolidating in these few areas and moving those investments into areas where we're not covered enough, right? But right now it's very difficult because they just don't know. You know, it's like they, they, they know they have tools out there. They don't really know necessarily what the costs are how much they're paying for these tools, what the support costs are. Yep. You know, in, in 30 years of doing this, I've asked senior IT leaders and security leaders three questions. How many tools do you have? How much are you paying? And how are those tools working for you? And I have yet to get an answer because they <laughs> just don't know. Yeah, that's true. I'm looking through here, Sean. I, I looked up CMMC. And now I don't feel quite so badly because I see that it was a program announced in January on January 31st, 2020. So this is pretty mm -hmm. fresh stuff, but it, it, it reads the primary goal is to improve the surety and security of controlled unclassified information, CUI, and federal contract information, FCI, that is in the possession and use of their federal contractors. So this, I, the way I, I guess the reason I read that, uh, Sean, was for me, uh, uh, from what I know, this is a huge issue that I'll bet there's a lot of people that don't really have a clue when they get the letter from the federal government that says, hey, you need to be CMMC3 certified to continue to do business with us. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting is that there are a lot. FISMA um, is a standard by which companies that interact with federal systems need yep. to be certified. Yep. 
there are many companies that go out there and sign contracts with the government. You know, they win an RFP and they start operating and things like that and completely forget the fact that they have to be FISMA certified um, until all of a sudden they get a letter one day saying, hey, we need, you know, we need confirmation um, that you guys are FISMA certified. And then you know, this could be two years after the contract because the government moves slow. Right. right. And they may, and then all of a sudden it's like mad dash, like, oh no, we never got FISMA certified, right? So, you know, there's this is going to be a big impact for a lot of companies. I think, it, you know, a lot of the larger companies that are, they're, they're already working on this, right? Yep. Um, but there's so many small companies that just don't know. And I will tell you that I'm, uh, I've been doing work with the government for 20 years so I'm on all kinds of mailing lists and I'm getting inundated with CMMC readiness, you know, emails from all kinds of companies and most of them are small, you know, single person auditing shops or, or things like that, that are really marketing CMMC. The interesting thing about CMMC is that, yeah, it was signed in 2020, has yet to be implemented, right? The idea is that it ultimately will be audited and there will be CMMC certified auditors, much like a financial audit, like a PCI um, or something. Yeah, like, or like an Ernst and Young, right? Ernst mm, and Young oh, will come I see, in right. and audit you against GAP standards, right? Yep, and yep. everyone, and they're, um, and everyone, you know, because they're certified and then they're certified public accountants, then they, you know, that's taken as, you know, the gospel when they come right, in. Right. Right. Um, so CMMC is doing the same thing, and they're they're going to be signing up auditors to come in and audit these companies uh, and the auditors they haven't even figured out the auditing process yet so there's still a few more years and and now cmmc is kind of stalled out because the, the dod is now coming back in and looking at it and saying you know is this being implemented correctly so it's going to be a few more years but it's right. coming yep. right it's going to come in some shape or form and and, and by the way, even if it's slow, these companies and we all as 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 companies need to be taking cybersecurity seriously. Mm. Right. And and as I talk about, you know, my companies, there's there's kind of multiple levels of me understanding why this is important to me and my company. And one is, do I have a regulatory requirement? So in a case of my consulting company, we have a regulatory requirement with the Department of Defense and CMMC to to adhere to, pretty pretty black and white. Right. Do we have um, contractual requirements with our customers? And we do a lot of work with Fortune 500 companies, and I I sign contracts all the time for about data you know with with controls in there for data protection things like that. Right. So we're obligated to protect our customers' data. So I have to think about that. That's kind of the next level. Not a regulatory control, but a contractual control right. uh, need. And then there's just me as a CEO, right? So my customers don't care about my internal employee system because their data is not there. But I have an obligation to my employees right. Right? I have, to protect their data. There's social security numbers and, and all, accounting information and bank, you know, I don't know if we have bank accounts, but our payroll systems do. Sure. So I have, I have an obligation as a CEO to protect my employees, right? So we as CEOs of companies, we need to be taking all this very seriously. And unfortunately, it's complicated stuff, you know, and a lot of companies – don't have 
the expertise to really do this well and need all the help they can get. Yep. And, you know, and, and the harder thing is, is that, you know, you know, only, only one person, I mean, this is a statistic I just read the other day. Let me sure I make sure I get this right. There's only one qualified person for every two cybersecurity job openings right now. <laughs> so you can't even get the people. You can't yep. get the talent. <clears throat> yep. right? And if you're a smaller company, where do you think someone with a cybersecurity background and a strong, they're going to go to a higher paid organization, yep. right? Um, so they need all the help they can get. And, you know, this is where we come in as Red Monocle is to, to help them really understand their cyber environment. So you don't need to be an expert on frameworks and controls and security tools and things like that. We can come in and actually do that for you and help you understand what's going on. But we can also work with, you know, we're working with one of the biggest healthcare companies in the world. Um, and the same thing, you know, so yep. everyone has this need. It's just, you know, scale is, is really probably the big difference. Sure. Well, and, you know, Sean, in my opinion, there was a time in the early days that you and I both recall when you cracked the cellophane off the outside of that monstrous Lotus one, two, three, or, 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 or word perfect or what, I mean, obviously this is dating myself. I'm not going to confirm or deny that I know what you're talking about right now. But there was also an investment that you made in really reading and learning because it seemed like the pace of the business allowed that time and investment because the benefit was so significant, right? But today, two things are happening. The pace of change that we've already talked about, right? The iterations and the number of new features and capabilities, they're coming and, and, and it's moving so fast. And the competitive forces of today's environment, the business forces uh, that keep everything taught, right? Everything, I mean, there's competitors on every corner. It just seems like people can't afford not to invest in experts. Otherwise, they're going to just get crushed. Yeah, I think, I think the one thing that we could probably all agree on right now is that evolution is speeding up oh. right? and the, the idea that you know 10 years ago you could start a fashion company right? uh, and 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 reach you know millions of dollars in sales in months yep right versus taking years to do that is mind-boggling now because the technology is just accelerated so much that you can have your, you know, you can have your shopping infrastructure up in hours. You can have all your your purchasing tools implemented with that shopping capability on something like Shopify or something like that. Yep. It's just and and then if you're in and let's say you're just in a, um, you know, you want to build a SaaS platform. I mean, you just have to. Everything is available to you now. You just kind of you and the node code technologies. Add water and shake, man. Yeah, it's add water yeah. and shake. It's just it, it, it is. And the capabilities around these things are just phenomenal, and it's just getting faster. I mean, come day. on. You were talking earlier about uh, the number of capabilities in the software programs companies buy, but. 
just go take a look at AWS or, or, or Azure or uh, Google and look at the pace of new things that they're offering, new capabilities, new programs, new functions. new. Ca- I mean, to your point, 10 years ago, Kubernetes... But now yeah. some, you know, what, 50 or more percent of enterprises are using it. Mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, and, and, and I think the thing the pandemic has at least taught me and, and I think some of my peers is that technology is enabling everything. Like you can't really have a business anymore that's not technologically enabled in some way. Yep. Because uh, you're just going to be beaten by somebody who does. Exactly. Right? And, you know, so if you're a landscaper and you're basically, you know, mailing bills out and requiring people to write checks, I, I think, you know, the first person that comes along says, hey, I can landscape your lawn and you can pay using, you know, Apple Pay or Google Pay. Or Venmo. And it'll all be <laughs> your Venmo. Yeah. You'd be like, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Right. Um, and the speed of change, you know, you can move so fast, right, off of one. So like you said, competition is 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 one – competition is one bad experience away, right? So, exactly. One and, click and you're just away. just on to the next thing. And yeah. One yeah. click away and you yeah. can move off of one thing to another. And, and you know, that's a, that's a really challenging thing if you're a business, right? It's like how do you – how do you continue to invest in technology? Because there's a there's a millions of businesses out there that just don't understand technology. Oh, and those right? are the businesses, Sean, that when they do finally get a website up or whatever, and they have reviews, and they have three reviews, and somebody gives them a bad review. And because they haven't cultivated and exercised the review process and really built up a lot of people and encouraged them to give them positive reviews, that can be devastating to a company that all of a sudden now they're hanging out in the Internet, right? They're out the window and it says their total stars are 1.3 and there's only seven reviews. I mean, that kind of stuff for the younger generation, particularly that really matters. Well, go to another one, find someone that's got more reviews. Yeah. I, I just, I just did a move in the fall and, um, I went to somebody who I thought was, would know really well. And they recommended this company to me and I was like, great. I went and looked at their review. The review was awful. Yeah. <laughs> awful review. So like, I just overrode my friend who gave me the recommendation, who was very knowledgeable in this space, and went to the guy that had the five-star review. It was that quick, you know? Yep. And, and, you know, the, the, the people who had the, the low review, they never even knew I made that decision. That's right. And, and, and so you're right. There's, there's, there's a whole new dichotomy in the, in, the, in the economy right now of how do you – you know how do you how do you use technology? But when you start down this path, you also have to be able to use it right, and you have to. And there's a whole other process around cultivating. And you're right; the younger generation gets it. You know, the the, the social media generation gets you know yep. what bikes mean. Yep. You know, yep. people. You know, older people. You know, may not understand that like what a hundred likes mean. Like, oh, likes are stupid. Well, they're actually you know uh, they go viral, <laughs> and when they go viral, things create sales and those sales go viral. And that's how you have somebody who creates a product that you never heard of yesterday 
and tomorrow is the hottest thing on the internet selling right. millions. So, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I wish I could remember the gentleman's name and the precise description, but he explained how crowdsourcing is actually unbelievably accurate. When you when you get a crowd, and he was actually he would go on talks and he'd walk out a a bull on the stage, and then ask all of the audience to guess the weight of the bull, and by eliminating the 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 fringes, right, the extreme high and the extreme low, and going back and averaging, the audience is almost every time correct. It's pretty amazing, and it has to do with when you get a sampling that is large enough and objective enough. Uh, now, reviews may be a different thing than something as specific as weight, right, on how heavy is this, um, but it speaks to the influence of that social media, and, and uh, I found that really interesting. But I, I, before I forget it, I want to I want to ask you about something else that... I think it's really an interesting transformation that's taken place because of the Internet as well. Uh, and it's the fact that we now live in a world where before the Internet, in order for 10 million eyeballs to see Sean McDermott, you know, you, you had to be on HBO or ABC, NBC, CBS, or something, right? I mean, your stage had to be uh, uh, one that reached that population density, that audience. Whereas today, you know, you get a video that a few people start to share, and, you know, you can have a million followers in just about any genre it's it and and so we have a it's just an interesting social fabric now with so many different opportunities to have a million followers of this or this you know uh, of fancy red shoes or ponytails or whatever else you know it's just it's really interesting i'm curious what you think oh, oh i have a lot of thoughts on this but i would i would boil it down to this you're absolutely right in going back 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And, and so conventional marketing is extremely expensive. And you, you're marketing across a wide group of people who you have no idea whether they are your core customer or not. Hit or miss. Right? So, yeah. Hit or miss. So you're going to advertise on late night TV, Johnny Carson you have no idea. I mean, you have a general idea, right? They're probably older people, right? Um, maybe tending mail. I mean, so you have these like Nielsen things that kind of help you get into the thing. Um, and if you advertise in Vanity or, or, or Vogue or something like that. Um, but it was extremely expensive. Yeah. Extremely expensive. And now you have, I mean, look at someone like Kylie Jenner. Right. Oh. Uh, now, granted, she had she was on the TV show and things like that, but she's at a place right now where she gets, I think, a million dollars for a product placement on her Instagram, and it's free. She doesn't pay any marketing costs for yep. that. 
yeah. and she makes a million dollars through that. And you can create a new product and go on TikTok and and it can go viral and yep. you can be selling tens of thousands of them and you didn't pay a dime in marketing. Yep. Yeah. Right. So the whole the whole industry is upside down based on this. And people who don't understand that, you know, are not gonna come out of this as winners. Yeah. Right. Because yep. and 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 here's the thing. You know, if you you can, you know, they have their tribes, right? So these influencers out there, and, and by the way, you know, do I do I like the fact that somebody you know who really hasn't you know done any hard work is now an influencer and making a lot of money? I don't know. I mean, it, it, people could look at it and be like, oh, that you know, that's so unfair, or whatever. But it doesn't matter, right? Because they're in a position now where they have so many followers and they cultivated this following, this tribe, that if that's your tribe that you're trying to sell something to, they can make incredible amounts of money, you know, through through just, you know, endorsing things through their through their social media. Yep. It's it's fascinating. You know, it, it really is. And and when you start really digging into it, it just gets even more interesting and and how you can you know, because in the end, like a really a good a good marketing team you have to understand your core audience and you have to understand what drives that audience emotionally and where do they hang out yeah yep. and you get those three things lined up you can be incredibly successful yeah you know i'm thinking to myself sean uh what i find it kind of interesting the clash of industries and i'm talking specifically about you've got the the radio market right pop radio music that is clashing with this whole digitization of music and this is a perfect example of uh, of where if you're a musician that can cultivate a following of a million people you know you don't have to be famous to be successful Right. You, you, you don't have to be globally famous to make a very good living and, and to uh, to to, again, be successful and not really that many people may know about you where, you know, that really wasn't possible. The gap between a successful artist and all of the other artists was just so much of a greater chasm than it seems to be today. Oh, yeah. I mean, you think back. You know, I'm a big music lover, right? And you, you go back into the 70s and 80s and the 90s, right, where everything was driven by record labels. You needed to be with a record label, right, yeah. because they had the distribution. They had the promotion. Yeah. So you had to be signed to be heard. Yeah. Right? You can't play enough small clubs. Eventually, even when you do that, you're doing that to get a record label, right? To exactly. Get, to get that distribution. That's why you're playing all these clubs. And they took now, a big piece of hide. Uh, to get yeah, that label. Yeah, they took it amazing. And sometimes they took all the hide. Right? Yeah. Um, now you can create music and put it up on SoundCloud, right? And and through that, get a digital audience, you know, get, you know, not a digital, a real audience, right? You can get, and again, you get to a million people. And then you're, you're much, you can put out your own music. Right? Yep. You can self-publish music. You can sell, I mean, we can self-publish books. We can... Everything now, so everything the models change up, and and getting back to cloud, right? Is oh, everything's being driven by really by cloud now, right? Because yeah. all these things where if you order a book, 
you self-publish a book and you order it to Amazon, Amazon's using their cloud infrastructure to literally print books on demand. Yep. Right. And you look at the 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 fitness industry and and what Peloton you know is doing as far as you know guided trained tours, right? And they oh. solved a huge problem, right? Of people not wanting to go to gyms for a number of reasons, not only logistics, but for self-esteem reasons, right? Yeah. And now they can exercise in their home with, you know, high quality um, trainers. And that's all driven by the cloud. And, you know, where we, you know, where I think about it is the cloud is, is exciting to me, right? And what's going on in the cloud and the potential and where it's going. But what really... I, I tend to, you know, like back in the day when I, at the Department of Justice, you know, we installed the first IP network mm. in the private government, you know, powered by a small company called Cisco, right? <laughs> and, you know, so we were on the forefront of that. And while everybody was out there saying, I want to be the next CCIE and build networks, I started thinking about it from a manageability I was like, how are we going to manage all this stuff? How are we going to manage these these distributed IP networks? So I kind of made my career in that. And now, you know, as I look at cloud, I'm thinking the same thing going as people are building new cloud applications. I'm like, how are we going to secure this? Yeah. Like, because we're moving so fast in the pandemic, you know, we moved, you know, there's companies that moved, you know, a thousand person call centers out of a building in a week. Yep. You know, a week before that, if you... A week before that, if you ask them, "Hey, would you would you ever think about moving your 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 call center to a remote to home base?" They'd be like, "We will never ever do that." Yep. A week later, they're moving everybody home. Yep. I I, I think there was a lot of ready, fire, aim, because yeah. they were told you got to shoot now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So this is something I've said is I think that a lot of people this was forced so much forced on them, they all made it work somehow where they had eight people using the vpns and now they had 800 um and everything was overwhelmed and so they were just hobbling stuff together and maybe foregoing some of the best hygiene with regards to security to make sure they got it done and now we're going back trying to get things righted yeah that's exactly what we're doing and you know the one thing you can say about the human spirit is that we rise to the challenge <laughs> right and you know, we, you know, if you would have told anybody on this planet that the, what would happen in case of a pandemic, you know, everyone, I don't think anybody would have been like, this could, this is possible. And it happened, right? Yeah. It, it literally happened. And, and here we, we, massive amounts of people move home and we had a lot of growing pains, but we kind of got through it. Um, but it also created a vast amount of vulnerabilities, right? And yep. it's, you know, we're, I'm not saying that solar winds and exchange and colonial pipeline and, you know, are the result of the pandemic and us moving fast because some of those things have been in play for a while. But, you know, cybersecurity now has just become really at the forefront of like, we got to protect our stuff. And, and I would tell you, one of the things that I'm really, really happy to see is this this administration taking cyber security seriously, yep. right? And because it, we've, what's shocking to me about the colonial pipeline is we've been talking about the, the vulnerability of critical infrastructure for years. Yep. 
years. Yep. And they got taken down by a ransom attack, right? So I look at that going, what are we doing? Like, what are we as an, like as a as a economy? You know, are we are we just putting our head in the sand on some of the stuff? Because if anybody should have been listening, is it's the energy industry, right? Yeah, and the right. Grids, because we've been they've been talking about it for ten years. Like we're we're vulnerable, we're vulnerable, and then it happens, and everyone's kind of surprised, you know. And now that you're seeing like, um, you know, gas shortages and stuff like that, you know, maybe that it, it's getting people to take this stuff more seriously. But we've got to we've got to understand like what our vulnerabilities are, and and that's where we try to get back to is like, okay, well, what is what is our destination here? What are we trying to do? Like, what do we, what is the standards that by which we're going to measure ourselves against? Because if we don't measure ourselves against some standard, then we just don't know how we measure up. Yeah. Right? You know, you said something, Sean, that I thought was really good and you just brought it up again. And I really think that it's an important thing to mention again. I think as we are all traveling at the speed of cloud, you know, light speed, streaking by our side windows we're just going so fast and and everyone's flying but i don't think everyone does consciously have a destination as you mentioned and i think that's a really good point what are you striving for what are you building for what are you trying to get to because i've said for years if you don't have a destination if you don't have a goal you don't have an objective you're, you, how are you going to ever know if you've gotten there? How are you going to know if you're making progress? So I think that that's a, a very insightful comment, remembrance for everybody listening in terms of cybersecurity. I think that that really is key. And I think also the fact that things are moving so fast and they're certainly not slowing down uh, this forced pandemic is really, I think, you know, you put it right. The, what's the, how's that phrase go? Necessity is the mother of invention. I mean, we, we are resilient. And I now think what we're going to see going forward, uh, Sean, won't look like it did in 2019. I believe that there's too many organizations that are saying, hey, yeah, I know you need to go see customers, but... Do you need to travel that much? Do we need to have that many in-person events? Because we just got through demonstrating how much we could accomplish without them. Yeah, I, I, I you know, as somebody who's traveled two million miles, <laughs> um, you know, almost every week for the last twenty-five years. Yeah. Um, and having not traveled now for, I mean, I have actually been traveling back and forth from my home in Florida to my to Washington D.C., where uh, my companies are. Um, I am starting to, I just, it's so obvious that it is incredibly inefficient, <laughs> um, and how it upsets rhythms and patterns and how it's just wasteful and time, you know, do I think travel is necessary? I think some travel is necessary, but what, what, what came out of this pandemic, which I think is great is the fact that we were all forced into a remote situation. You know, not some of us, we all were. So now that we've all been in, we're all now seeing some of the benefits of it and, and some of the, you know, disadvantages, but definitely some of the benefits of, hey, we don't need 
to fly out there to have a, a meeting. We can do it over Zoom, right? Um, so maybe instead of us flying out every month to meet with you, we'll fly out every four months and right. we'll do everything else on Zoom. And now it's just become natural. Yep. And I, I, you know, so we'll we'll see how it goes. And I think that we'll see how companies manage this back to work. There's an interesting article in the New York Times this morning just about how messy this going back to work could actually really be for companies. Yeah. It's gonna. It's, it's not gonna be smooth. Seventy-one percent. I saw in some uh, study. Seventy-one percent of the employees asked said they don't want to go back to full time back to the to to the office. So, I I think it is going to be interesting. And I think it. You know, one of the things I know for us. So it's it can be so costly, and you hit the nail on the head. Inefficient sitting in a a bus in the air for two hours it takes five hours uh, by the time you spend more money to get a car or uh, get transported and then spend more money to have a bed to sleep in and spend more money to eat food that you have in your refrigerator at home all to sit down and meet for 35 45 minutes or an hour to leave it, you know that it really does beg the question do we need to keep doing it like we used to? And I think I think the the verdict is out. I think it's a no. So yeah, I think it's a no too. And I will tell you, ninety percent of my company's staff do not want to go back to to work full time in the office. Ninety percent. The world has spoken. Yeah, it, that, that's right. Technology's here. Let's leverage it. Let's use it. Uh, that's not to say I don't love human contact, but. If I can get more done and still be able to spend time with my family and the ones that mean the most to me, I think that's what matters. And it gives me a better quality of life overall, uh, or at least I feel like it. Yeah, and I don't think it takes away from the experience, right, the client experience and what they're trying to get. Because in the end, you know, we're, we're you know, I'm, I own a consulting company, right, been around for 24 years. Uh, we are in the people business. Yeah. Like we are, people are our product. Uh, relationships are the key to everything that we do. 80% of our business is repeat business and expansion business of existing customers. I mean, we are in, you know, we need to be, you know, connected to our customers to ensure the customer experience that we want to give and what they deserve. It's, it's pretty apparent now that we don't actually have to be face to face to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. It's, it's a nice to have that we'll do it. We will do it. Right. Um, but we don't have to do it as much. You know? right. And it's not going to, you know, it's kind of funny if like if you if you basically talk to somebody today who's now just coming into the workforce. Right. Let's say they came into the workforce on you know April 2020 and now been in for coming up a year and a half and are working remote and doing all this stuff. And you said, yeah, I used to travel you know, two hours to have a 45 minute meeting, you know, going the night before they would look at you like, are you nuts? Like, why would you ever do that? And you sit there and go, yeah, we did that all the time. Or, or another one might be, yeah, you know, I, I used to get up at five every morning so I could drive in and it was 32 miles, but it took an hour and a half uh, to get to the office Right. When you think of the logic behind that, when you, you can get the stuff done and it just doesn't make it just doesn't make sense. But I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, the world has voted 
and so I think we can all expect we're going to be working from home. But, you know, Sean, I got to say, this has been very interesting. You've really brought out some great points. And I think what you really reminded me to remind my listeners is, hey, hire the experts, man. Get the experts, folks like Sean and his organization uh, to help you because there's just too much at risk if if you don't. So, Sean, thank you very much for uh, coming on the program today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Grant. This was, uh, this was a pleasure. I had a lot of fun being here. Thank you. You're welcome, and I'll definitely ask you back, okay? Yeah, I'd love to be back. This yeah. Was, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, perfect. Well, hey, ladies and gentlemen, check out Red Monocle. Did I say that right, Sean? Red Monocle. Red like the color, monocle like an eyeglass. Redmonocle.com. Perfect. Check them out. A great organization. You heard it here. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. This has been really absolutely a fantastic episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I really enjoyed talking with Sean. Insightful stuff. And I can tell you that I'm actively seeking and have lined up some more experts. We're going to have some great episodes coming up. So I hope that uh, you'll share, tell your friends, subscribe. And I sure want to thank you for listening to Talking Cloud. And we'll see you on the next episode. So take care. Yeah. Mm-hmm.